9 a.m. to 12 p.m. This is the morning review with Lester Kivert on K Talk. It is my favorite time of the week. It's that time when we answer those burning questions by Dr. Chris Smith. He tells us and gives us a scientific point of view of what is happening in this beautiful world around us. It feels like Christmas every time I speak to you, Dr. Chris Smith. Well, it felt like Christmas well, it, for me when I was watching the football. <laughs> I hope it stays Christmas a little bit longer. This is amazing, isn't it? Haven't haven't seen anything the likes of this in my entire lifetime. Amazing. I, I'm so I'm so sorry. I'm I'm not going to be supporting or approving. <laughs> I, 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 Forza Italia for me this weekend. But anyway, James oh. in, James in Simon Sun. How are you doing this morning? Fine, thank you. Uh, uh, good morning to you both. Morning. Why did Sir Ernest Shackleton and his crew become weaker when they were forced to live on seal and penguin meat, uh, you know, protein? Uh, and But Eskimos have been living on this sort of thing for years. Why don't they have the same problem? Yes, interesting question. I think there's a number of, of issues here. And one of them is that those people who were on that expedition were subsisting on a very monotonous diet for a very long time. And Inuit people who uh, live obviously at the opposite end of the planet because the Inuits live at the North Pole, the Shackleton expedition was to the South Pole. But they are uh, potentially able to access other sorts of foodstuffs. And also, those individuals have have been living there for generations and generations and generations. And it's likely there's some degree of selection has been imposed on and I mean that genetically, on the people who live there to endow them with the best set of genes to survive those sorts of circumstances. And then this goes for a whole range of different factors, such as stature uh, and other defence mechanisms that make you able to defend yourself best against the exigencies of where you live. But those people who were on that expedition would have been subject to calorie restriction. They would have been subject to a very monotonous diet, which was going to therefore be quite quickly deficient in certain micronutrients. And that's why a balanced diet is so important because one given foodstuff may be rich in some types of, of nutrient but have a paucity of others. And if you solely subsist on that particular nutrient or nutrient source, you will quite quickly open up a gap in your, in your nutrient repertoire of things that are missing. And if you don't fill that gap, then you will end up unwell for it. And very commonly among that will be water-soluble vitamins like the B vitamins because you can't store them in your body. You pee them down the toilet or onto the ice in their case if uh, you if you do have any of them because any excess can't be stored. And as a result, if you don't have any in your diet, you quite quickly run out of them. So I would say that's the most likely reason. But if anyone knows better, do please tell us. I knew that this question would come in sooner rather than later. The question is here on the WhatsApp line, Chris. Are laser beams bad for goalkeepers? Very <laughs> bad. Is, and um, to, the, to, the, to the extent that UEFA are actually levelling a complaint against England because obviously the Danish goalkeeper was subject to a laser beam potentially in his eyes uh, ahead of, of a crucial part in that match this week. It is extremely dangerous. And the reason it's extremely dangerous to shine a laser beam anywhere near anyone's eyes is that if you've ever done the experiment where you take a magnifying glass and you focus the sun's light onto a piece of wood, you can actually burn the wood. Well, a laser pointer is far more intense when you're looking at that spot of light than the sun's light is at that point. And so if you focus light from a laser pointer to a point, it would be very, very destructive indeed. And the way your eye works is that the lens in your eye 
focuses light to a point on your retina so that you can resolve that spot of light and turn it into brain waves that build up the visual world for you. Well, if you end up with so much energy being focused to a point, the same thing will happen to your retina as happens to that piece of wood under a magnifying glass. You will burn holes in your retina and you will never see in that patch of your retina again, which is why it is extremely important that people never do this. It it seems like a laugh to sort of wave a laser pointer at somebody from a long way away. But if it does go into their eye and it's sufficiently energetic, it will be focused onto their retina because that's how the eye works and it will be destructive. They may end up with a blind spot there. I wonder if there's any regulation in the UK. I don't know about you in South Africa, but you can buy a, a laser pointer at, at any five rand store, any pound store. You know, these cheap imported things that, that, that kids then play with. I wonder if there is any regulation on these laser pointers that, that do have a purpose. You know, academics and standing at a, at a board pointing at, at whatever, doing a presentation. I wonder if there's any regulation on these, on these laser pointers, Chris. There is an energy threshold. You should not be using... Uh over a certain energy threshold which is potentially more destructive the lower energy ones are uh, allowed and there's not a problem with that although people who are found to be obviously using them for nefarious purposes if you're shining them in people's eyes with the intention of distracting them and there have been cases where people have actually used laser pointers against pilots of aircraft and this is extremely dangerous because even if it doesn't permanently damage their vision it's likely to impair their vision for at least a, a period of time and that could cause a crash so they are potentially dangerous. We must be careful with them. And it's they're dangerous because of the range. So please don't do that. Not only could you damage someone's sight for a, for a permanent, on a permanent basis, but you could cause a catastrophe in the short term if you do, for instance, distract a driver and they, and they have a crash or kill somebody. The messenger saying that, hi, Dr. Chris, some years back, lasers had to be banned on the incoming flight routes between uh, Joburg. Uh, that's a message that just came in between Joburg and Cape Town. It is Friday. It is Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist. Keith is asking, can it be dangerous if you drink too many energy drinks at one time? Uh, Keith, it, it can be dangerous because obviously volume excess. If you put too much fluid on board, that's not going to be good for anybody. Energy drinks pack quite a hefty caffeine punch. They've also got other stimulants in them and a massive dose of calories. So taking on board all at once a significant amount of this is probably a really bad idea. And it's going to be a really bad idea because if you keep doing that, it's going to, it's going to almost certainly lead to you putting on a lot of weight. But also you're likely to get quite high blood pressure and the caffeine dose is likely to impair your ability to sleep properly and it's also going to wind up your flight or fight reaction because caffeine potentiates the action of adrenaline in your body so it will drive your heart rate very very high you may also find yourself feeling anxious shaky and having panic attacks this will definitely impair rather than help performance so i'd say uh, energy drinks are fine if you use them every so often and you enjoy using them every so often using them regularly as a replacement for a decent night's sleep and a decent supply of calories is a really bad idea and will be health destructive and deleterious in the long term interesting question here from shabuddin um, we haven't met in real life, Chris, but when I smile, my eyes go into very, very narrow slits. I can still see quite clearly, but people say they can't see my eyes. Uh, and Shabuddin asks, good morning, doctor. I wear spectacles and when peering at the alarm clock when I wake up, I can see almost clearly without the lenses when I narrow my eyelids and peer at the clock. What am I doing right there? What is happening with my eyes? 
What you're doing is creating your own pinhole camera. The way this works, and you can actually demonstrate this for yourself, if you take a piece of paper and make a very tiny hole, a pinhole in it, and if you've got poorer vision, you'll definitely notice this working. Even if you've got good vision, you'll notice an improvement. Hold up the piece of paper. Look through the pinhole with one eye at distant objects and you'll notice that they are a lot sharper. Now the reason this works, excuse me, <clears throat> the reason this works is because when light rays come from a distant object, they reach your eye and are then focused by the front part of the eye called the cornea and then the lens behind the cornea onto a point on the retina. And that focusing it depends on the on the on the amount of your retina that sees a light ray is very dependent on the focusing apparatus at the front of your eye. If you put a tiny hole in front of your eye, you massively limit the amount of light that can come in. So you're only going to be able to see bright objects any more clearly like this. But by limiting the amount of light that comes in, the light rays will come through the pinhole they go through the front of the eye and land on the retina, but because there's so few of them, they will only stimulate a very tiny area of the retina corresponding to a, a version of the image you're trying to look at in the distance. And as a result of there not being a lot of light that needs focusing to one point, and if the focusing system isn't perfect, it blurs, you will only see a very discreet version of the distant object, and it looks sharper. And people used to make cameras this way. In the early days, cameras without optics, without lenses, you use the pinhole as the lens. As I say, the downside is you are enormously restricting how much light can come through. That's how you get the sharp image. But you, you, that means you can see things that are brightly lit at a distance much more clearly. And in fact, anyone who's good at photography would know very well, if you narrow the aperture setting on your camera right down, so you've got a very, very tiny aperture on the camera, you get amazing depth of focus. So in other words, if I look at something through my camera with a very tiny aperture setting on the camera, I can see things in the foreground and the background in focus because you're exploiting that same pinhole effect. But when you open the aperture right up, you let lots of light in and therefore you will only have a very small amount of focusing area. So you'll, you'll, you'll focus to a certain distance, but anything beyond that distance and anything in front of that distance is going to be blurry. And you're doing exactly the same thing when you narrow your eyelids. You're narrowing your eye aperture to a very tiny pinhole and invoking this effect. Uh, Chris, what's, what is then the, the environmental... Uh, sort of conditions which allowed for some people to, uh, uh, in terms of evolutionary terms, be born with uh, with with eyes that are are, are very uh, very narrow. I very narrow eyes, and a lot of people in my family are very narrow eyes. Different parts of the world, people have have narrow eyes. Other people have are, have very bright and big, you know, eyes like saucers. What, what is the the the, the uh, evolutionary? difference between those particular traits well our eyes as humans are roughly all the same size and it's it's the facial structure that varies around the eyes and very much specifically the muscles the orbicularis oculis muscles that form a ring around the eyes and the tissues that they're attached to that's what gives your face its shape it's there's an underlying bony skeleton and attached to that bony structure that scaffolding are muscles and the muscles are then overlaid by skin and fat and so where you find all those structures you will you will vary the shape of, of the different facial features whether it's the nose the mouth eyes and so on and the bottom line to any kind of evolutionary question is people have been selected if they've lived in an area 
over millions to thousands of years, depending upon what we're talking about. But the organisms that live anywhere have been selected by the pressure of the environment in which they live to be the best adapted to exist in that environment. And there are many, many characteristics we can look at across the entire globe where you see this at work. We began the programme talking about the Inuit peoples who live in the far frozen north. You will find generally those people have slightly darker skin than people who are more southerly existing uh, in, in Europe, for example. You will find they tend to have a shorter stature and they also are very, very um, compact strong individuals this gives them a, 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 a superior surface area to volume ratio so they're losing heat less well their slightly dark coloration gives them protection against protect uh, reflected ultraviolet off of a, a white shiny snowy icy surface and uh, th those are just some of the adaptations you refer to eye shape and structure for example this is very common in people who would have been in areas or involved in areas where it's very very bright reflective surfaces so sea uh, ice snow and wind because what do you do when you're facing an oncoming gale you narrow your eyes why does that help because by narrowing your eyes you're less likely to get wind whipping things into your eyes from the side and in front so it's a defense mechanism so people who have that characteristic have, have evolved that characteristic and selected for it because it's beneficial to them and their ancestors in the environment in which they lived. It doesn't really help if you've worked in television doing a broadcast outside and your camera operator says, open your eyes and you say, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Mariana in the northern suburbs, good morning, how are you? Hello, Lisa. I hope there's no echo because I'm on my hands. Please. No, it's fine. Lovely program. I'm a big fan. Hello, Chris. Hooray. What's your question? Um, um, I've just got a, something to add to your current discussion. Um, in art class, we were taught, I do paintings, by the way, um, you squint your eyes when you look at the uh, picture that you're working from to get rid of all the details. Just so that you could get the broad areas of your painting, your entire picture on your canvas. Because you'll need to add the detail later. Ah. Most students will get intimidated by all the detail in the painting or the picture or whatever they're working from. Mm. Yes, I, I, I can see why that might work, actually, because um, we do tend to focus on things. The bit we're looking at, we get obsessed with the detail in the thing we're looking at because at the end of the day, that's where your brain is, is putting most of its attention. But the whole image matters because the brain decodes the whole thing but only presents certain parts of it to your consciousness at any one time. So, yes, trying, I suppose, to, to throw yourself off of the scent so you see the whole experience rather than focus on any one bit of it, I can see why that might be beneficial. Tommy Greenpoint, thanks so much for holding on. How are you? Hi guys, interesting topic. To further this, are there any humans that have better senses than others, eyes, smell, hearing, than the general population? I'd be interested to know. Thanks so much, Tim. Oh, Parents with toddlers have had very good hearing, especially when they're not hearing anything with a toddler in another room. Then something very bad must be happening. I was going to say they have the ability, and I know because I've been one, to grab, grab a, a, a sort of bit of restorative sleep at any moment in time to recover. And, and they also have the patience of a saint, don't they? All, all us parents have the patience of a saint. The answer is yes, I think there almost certainly are uh, different peoples uh, who live in different parts of the world who have different abilities and different um, skills or uh, particular aspects of their physiology that benefit them. I think the best example of this, 
Look at skin colour. There are people who have skin colour that perfectly protects them against the environment. And if you grow up in it or you've evolved in a certain part of the world where it's very, very sunny and you would be robbed of all of your folic acid and therefore at high risk of having babies that might have spina bifida, by having dark skin, you are brilliantly defended against that and secondarily, you're brilliantly defended against getting skin cancer. On the other hand, if you live in a place where there isn't much sunshine or enough sunshine, you've not got a problem with folic acid, so you're not going to have a problem with babies having spina bifida, but you sure as hell will have a problem with not having enough vitamin D. And vitamin D is critical to control calcium. So people who have evolved paler skin where there isn't enough sunshine to make enough vitamin D have the other benefit. So I I think those those are two classic examples of people who have evolved in different parts of the earth or have started in one part of the earth, moved to another part of the earth and evolved new characteristics. Along with other things like we've been talking about, stature, ability to to live in very harsh environments. This is very, very common, but those sort of specialisms are blurring in the modern era because we're all moving around more. But historically, where people went somewhere and stayed there, they then had the chance for these sorts of evolutionary patterns to kick in. Um, but now we're, we're a giant melting pot again because the world has shrunk thanks to modern travel. So we're seeing some of those characteristics um, disappearing again or merging into the general background genetic media again. I love these questions from, from Jeff in Parklands because it tells us even about not only what's happening here on Earth, but how, in fact, the universe was formed. It says, Dr. Chris, there's a, a huge mass of water on Earth. Where did all the hydrogen and oxygen come from for all that water, all that H2O? Well, when the Earth was first forming, it formed from a disk of material, which was called a protoplanetary disk, which was congregating around what was to become our sun, a protostar, about five billion years ago. So we know that in our cosmic neighbourhood, something... We don't know what, but people speculate perhaps uh, there was a supernova, the exploding death throes of another star nearby, buffeted a big cloud of gas and dust hard enough to cause it to start collapsing in on itself. And because it was all spinning and turning, it would have collapsed in on itself to start forming the sun. And the residuum of that material was a disk around that sun that was also spinning. And out of that disk would have formed planets... But that disk was gas, it was dust, it was other material which contained all of the elements that you find here on Earth. Plus, there have in the subsequent years, the four and a half billion years the planet's been here, there would have been a number of other impacts from asteroids and also comets which have delivered additional materials to the Earth, including enormous amounts of water. We think most of the water on Earth came from asteroids early on in the planet's history. But other experiments have shown that there was already a lot of water here forming in that cloud of of dust and gas that the planet first formed from. So the Earth got its water really from two sources. It got its water from the material that formed the planet, but then it got a lot of water and most of what we're swimming around in today subsequently from comet and mainly asteroid impacts since. Sahir in rugby, how are you doing? Hi, well, thanks for yourself. Very good. What's your question? Uh, So my question is just um, how many senses do we have? You know, like touch, taste, smell. Traditionally in school we were taught we have five, but I've seen articles where it says we have up to 20 or even more senses. Very interesting question. Yeah. How many senses, you know, make up, make, does, are are we made up with? There's, of course, touch, smell, taste, hearing, sight, as Zahir said, that we are taught in school, Chris. Yeah, I, I don't believe in the sixth sense. 
I think that's better called intuition and uh, and actually thinking about what might go wrong in your environment and therefore planning for it. Um, I, th- I think the main ones that you've mentioned are the critical ones. We have general senses and we also have special senses, don't we? And the one that um, is probably the one we set the highest store by is vision. And you can also get a clue for that because the brain devotes a third of itself to just decoding what you look at. More than a third of your brain is devoted to what goes in your two eyeballs. And in each of your optic nerves, there's about a million nerve fibres carrying information from each eye into the back of your head, which is where everything you're seeing at the front of your head, in front of you, is being decoded. It's pretty weird, isn't it, when you think that what you're looking at is actually being decoded and built into a picture at the back of your head and then presented to your consciousness and when you try and think of it you think that is really strange and it kind of makes your head spin a bit when you when you try and think of it but uh, the main the main senses are as you've said what we look at what we can hear what we can smell what we can taste what we can feel and um, feeling isn't just touching something and feeling that it's rough. There's vibration senses. There are thermal senses. There are other things such as uh, the, the texture of a surface. So I, I think it's probably wrong to say there are 20, but certainly there are multiple senses, but they're all integrated together in our brain and in our nervous system. So when we interact with the world, we're actually building a picture of the world around us based on the inputs of all of those senses, but we don't tend to view them in isolation. This next question is a perennial debate, particularly in a city like Cape Town. The message is, please ask Chris to clarify what is actually meant by percentage chance of rain in forecast. Is it the percentage of probability or the area, percentage area being forecast? This, I know, is also a debate in my family as well, Chris. (laughs) Right. Okay. It is the probability that it's going to rain in that period of time. When they build these weather models, in the old days, people were much less good at doing this. Now we have computers that take up more space than a football field uh, that are doing very complicated calculations and running incredibly complicated mathematical models of how local areas work and computing what the likely weather pattern will be for that particular cell in other words that patch of ground over a certain period of time and they do it for minutes to hours to days to weeks to months and obviously the accuracy falls with time so the farther away in time you go the more uncertainty there is and that uncertainty is because you're saying well we think based on what we know about how weather patterns work we think that this will happen and this will cause this to happen which will cause this to happen but there's a chance in each case that it won't and so the uncertainty grows with with time out from when you make the prediction because of that and reflecting that uncertainty they state a percentage probability that they're going to be right in other words if 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 i look outside right now i can say it's not raining right now so that's a hundred percent chance that it's not raining But in 10 minutes' time, well, I don't know what it's going to do in 10 minutes' time, but looking at the sky, looking at where the wind is going, looking at the the sort of temperature, I might say, well, mm, I think it's going to rain in 10 minutes' time, but I'm not 100% sure, but I'm 99% sure. Now, that would be a pretty accurate forecast, of course. But that's basically how it works. So when you see a weather forecast and it says you are going to have a 50% chance of rain, it means that for that particular patch of ground, the probability of rain in that next period of time is that number. 
Chris, we, we have time for probably one more answer, but I'm going to squeeze two questions together because they're related. One says, good morning, Chris. We passed the winter solstice on the 21st of June. So why are the days, so the days are getting longer due to the sun's arc moving uh, to the southern hemisphere. If this is so, why are the worst of winter always after the solstice and shouldn't it be getting warmer and i'm going to tie that into a question with lindy uh, she also asked over the month of january in cape town we lose 36 minutes of daylight in february we lose 53 in march 64 in april 57 but in may 42 minutes and in june only nine minutes of daylight are lost in the month can you please explain why this is so uneven thanks lindy the, the reason is when we think of planets on their orbits around a star, so imagine the Earth going around the sun, we tend to simplify and draw a circle. But in fact, the Earth's orbit around the, the sun is not circular. The Earth is doing a giant ellipse, in other words, a squashed circle. And so this means at some points in its orbit, it's going faster and, in other words, turning more of a corner than at other parts of its orbit. And that has the effect of affecting day length to a different degree at different parts of the orbit and that is why you see at some times of the year days appear to shrink in terms of daylight hours more than at other times of the year. Dr Chris Smith every Friday after 9.30.